This is the Reformand Initiative podcast, where we analyze and discuss Roman Catholic theology and practice from an evangelical perspective. My name is Clay Kennard. I'm sitting here in the city center of Rome with Reed Carr and Leonardo de Chirico. How are you doing, gentlemen? Very well, thank doing you. well. Thanks, Clay. And before we get into uh, our, our episode content, I want to talk about our sponsor for this episode, and that's Union School of Theology, where they grow leaders to help grow Christ's church. So if you're looking for a sound, healthy um, institute that can help prepare and equip um, your men and women for, for helping grow the church, Union School of Theology is the place to look. Uh, they offer bachelors, they offer masters, they offer PhD studies. In fact, Reed is uh, a PhD research student at the moment. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. How's that going? I'm just beginning, but it's going well so okay. far. <laughs> good, good. Well, if you want to know more about Union School of Theology, and check out their website at www.ust.ac.uk. www.ust.ac.uk. All right, Reed. So we kicked off last week with um, an episode about Mary because there's just something about Mary. Yeah. And I think we're going to continue that into today's episode. Yep. So tell us what we're going to talk about this morning. Yeah, we're going to do part two on Mary. Of course, it's a huge topic, so it's hard to get all the content in one episode. In the first episode, kind of laid a foundation for, for our, I think, what will be the meat of the conversation today. But we, we looked at and talked about and demonstrated the fact that Mary and Mariology is an intrinsic part of Roman Catholic theology and practice. It's not a peripheral issue. Uh, it's a core issue, and it's something that needs to be dealt with seriously. Uh, not something that can be set aside and ignored and let's let's um, uh, hug and, and shake hands on what we do agree on. Mariology and Mary is intrinsic. It's deeply rooted in uh, Roman Catholic theology. We looked at how that's expressed through Marian devotion, through prayers, through pilgrimages, to Marian apparitions, to um, <clears throat> how deeply rooted it is has been in uh, the theology of recent popes, um, and so we laid the foundation for what we'll talk about today, um, which is first looking at uh, how, how did we arrive at this fully developed Mariology? And we ended in the first episode just kind of looking very briefly at what does the Bible say about Mary? Uh, and, and, but getting from what the Bible says about Mary to this fully developed Mariology, how did that happen? Is it a, is it, is it a short trajectory? Is it a long trajectory? Does it go back centuries? Is it something that's is it recent? Um, so that's some, something important to look at. Where did it come from? How did it develop? Second, we'll look at some of these key Marian teachings, such as uh, the Immaculate Conception, um, Mary's perpetual virginity. Her, she's an ever virgin. She never had any sexual relations with any man, including Joseph, uh, and why that's important uh, for the Catholic faithful. Uh, her bodily assumption into heaven. Um, which is uh, celebrated this month, or well, tomorrow is the first day of September, but coming up, uh, first day of December, um, but that's coming up. Um, Mary is mediatrix. Mary is mother of God, mother of the church. Uh, so those are. It's interesting to see how the church arrived at those at those teachings and how what what are they what are they rooted in? Are they rooted in scripture? Are they rooted in tradition? A little bit of both. How did they, how did they get to those teachings? And lastly, and I'm not sure we'll get this to, to this today, but we definitely need to take a good look at the uh, overall theological problems that Mariology presents, certainly from a per, uh, uh, evangelical perspective, and and digging into those a little bit to say what, this is a problem for these reasons. So we'll see if we get that get to that today. If not, we'll do a third part where we focus solely on the theological issues that we raise. But 
again, first we want to kind of look at this, this um, getting from Mary of the Bible to a fully developed Mariology. And in Leo's book, he, his chapter two deals with this uh, subject specifically. But let me just read a couple excerpts from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that um, kind of that reveal this intrinsic uh, Mariology. And before we get into uh, get into the, the the development of it, um, <clears throat> looking for example in in section nine sixty six of the Catechism. Again, the Catechism is just a collection of all the Church's teachings on various doctrines, and there's lots on Mary. And it's interesting to see that Mary appears throughout the entire Catechism. A lot of times, you'll see the Catechism deal with the subject, and they move on to the next. But Mary because she's so intrinsic, she shows up throughout because she um, has to do with so much of of Catholic doctrine. But uh, looking at section 966, for example, it says, finally, the Immaculate Virgin preserved free from all stain of original sin when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things Mm -hmm. so that she might be the more fully conformed to her son, the Lord of Lords and conqueror of sin and death. The assumption of the blessed Virgin Mary is a singular participation in, in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. We spoke about this one uh, last week, section 971. The church's devotion to the blessed Virgin Mary is intrinsic to Christian worship. The church rightly honors the blessed Virgin with special devotion. Going all the way back to Section 487, and this is key. This will be key to our discussion today. It says, what the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ. And what it teaches about Mary illumines, in turn, its faith in Christ. So that will be key. We'll discuss that more. Section 829, but while in the most blessed virgin, the church has already reached that perfection whereby she exists without spot or wrinkle, the faithful still strive to conquer sin and increased holiness. And so they turn their eyes to who? Mary. In her, the church is already the all holy. Obviously, we see Leo in, in the catechism, a fully developed Mariology. But how did we get from the Mary of the Bible that we, disp- we spoke of to um, this fully developed Mariology? And you, I just want to quote before I give, asking you this question. I want to quote from your book, chapter 2. And you say it very well and very clearly, the New Testament presents a realist portrait of Mary. She is neither overemphasized nor downplayed. The biblical focus is on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Against the background of the centrality of Jesus, Mary is the chosen bearer of the incarnate Son of God and part of the early community of disciples. The reasons for this choice are entirely God's and have nothing to do with her being unique or special. History, however, took a very different direction. Mary called herself a servant, but in Christianity today, vast numbers address her as immaculate virgin, queen of the universe, advocate, auxiliatrix, I don't know, I don't know how to say that, adjudatrix, and mediatrix. For each title, there's a theological explanation and a set of devotional practices. The contrast could not be more stark. From the sketched portrait of scripture to a fully formed doctrine of Mary, the gap is evident. How is this possible? The lengthy process through which Mary became the subject of Mariology was not linear. It accumulated different viewpoints, devotions, and doctrinal formulations, which eventually led to the formation of a body of beliefs and practices centered on Mary, but beyond biblical boundaries. So, Leo, I mean, you say very well here that we went from the 
Mary of the Bible to this fully formed Mariology, these titles that go beyond biblical boundaries. How is this possible? He says it's not a, it, it wasn't a linear process, but accumulated various viewpoints throughout history. Tell us a little about that. How do we get from Mary of the Bible to the Mary of Mariology? Well, that's, that's a very <laughs> interesting story because it combines different strands uh, of development in Mariology. And uh, one driving force was the, uh, the so-called Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi. The fact that out of devotions, um, the, the church developed a doctrine. Mm -hmm. So out of the prayers, the devotions of uh, people who were still untaught, uh, as far as basic Bible teaching was concerned, uh, there was a demand for uh, to formulate a, a teaching, a doctrine of Mary that came out of uh, grassroots practice, so, and and uh, and this was something that the church was not able to uh, to to safeguard in terms of biblical teaching, but um, embraced uh, practices and devotions and. Uh, uh, assumptions that were part of pagan ancient religions uh, related to the uh, the cult of the goddess, uh, the goddess mother. And uh, so that cult infiltrated Christianity and the church was not able to discern what was going on and simply gave ground to this uh, Christianized pagan, pagan devotion to the goddess. And um, so the Lex Orandi lex credendi. What you pray is what eventually you will believe. Mm. And uh, unchecked with uh, uh, the Bible, this law became the driving force for uh, development in, 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 in Mariology. And uh, another strand that was very powerful was this, again, an, an idea taken from uh, pagan, pagan culture associating virginity to a holier status. Mm. Uh, this is not uh, Old Testament, um, the Old Testament vision of uh, womanhood. For, for uh, the, the Old Testament, the mother is actually the, uh, you know, bearing a child, having children. This is a, a, a real blessing for a woman. And being barren is actually a curse. Uh, but in pagan cults, in pagan religions, the, uh, the, 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 the virgin was associated with uh, uh, pagan uh, sacrificial uh, rituals and, and, and temple uh, religion. And, uh, and this, this um, whole uh, figure was then associated to the uh, the figure of Mary becoming this uh, idealized virgin that was not part of the biblical portrait and uh, so developing yet another str uh, strand of uh, Mariological discourse. And, uh, and then thirdly, <clears throat> the dogmatic uh, statement at the Council of Ephesus, 431, where uh, Mary was then associated with the title of uh, Theotokos, the bearer of God, the, the mother of God. And uh, uh, that title gave 
dogmatic force to this Mariological development and uh, becoming a, a springboard for future developments in Mariology. And so the intention of the Council, we might argue, that was uh, primarily Christological. That is, the, 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 the main idea was to defend the view whereby uh, Christ was uh, fully God and fully man. And so there is a sense in which uh, his mother was the mother of God, in the sense that Jesus being God and man, the mother of Jesus is the mother of God. There is a sense in which this statement is, is uh, biblically uh, plausible and even defendable. The problem was that this statement was taken out of context, out of that Christological context, becoming uh, a Mariological statement mm. on, the, on the very person of Mary as intrinsically, uniquely attached to her, no longer being uh, the, uh, the uh, outcome of her association to her son, mm. but being something describing her own unique nature, mother of God. And out of that title, mother, uh, that idealization of motherhood became uh, yeah, a strong uh, force uh, calling for further developments and, 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 and growths in, in Mariological discourse. And, uh, and also providing what you were saying before, that um, syllogism, that principle, whereby whatever can be said of the son can also be said of the mother. And that organic extension of Christological titles and prerogatives to the mother. Mm. And that providing a, a, something of a uh, untainable, um, ever-growing, um, always expanding uh, flow of Mariological development that even is 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 uh, is part of even present present day Catholicism. Looking back at the latest dogma, uh, 1950 dogma uh, on mm. the bodily assumption of Mary, so showing that that powerful principle has been at work. Mm -hmm. throughout history up to our, our, our day and, and continuing on. So as we look back through history uh, and noting a couple of things that you said, uh, it's, not like, it's not true to say that Mariology came from one specific church father or, uh, in fact, you say on, on page 26 of your book, no single event can explain the origins and growth of Mariology. You did mention the uh, Council of Ephesus in 431 where this... Um, title bearer of God, which was then abused in a sense, uh, in the years to come, that would be the fifth century, 431. What about, what, what led up to that? Uh, do we have any Mariological developments preceding the... Well, yeah, there was the, the prayers, the, the devotions of, of the people, which uh, went unchecked uh, from a biblical standpoint and were... Um, uh, assumed in the practice of the church, uh, leading up to the expectation that these prayers, these uh, devotions would uh, be declared uh, doctrinally sound. 
And uh, so it was in the context of the um, Constantinian shift of the early church from the fourth up to the fifth century, that transition from the church being uh, a church of believers in Christ, a church of converts, becoming more and more the church of the people, the church of the majority, the church of the, uh, that was adapting to um, culture. And so reflecting the values of culture rather than changing, subverting them, becoming more and more part of the imperial setting and less and less part of the biblical uh, roots of, of the church. In that transition, Mariology is one uh, important factor of the transition from the biblical church to the uh, imperial church, to the mm -hmm. paganized church, to the institutional, hierarchical, imperial, Marian church. So it's part of a bigger process that took place, you know, from uh, third, fourth, up, you know, into the fifth mm -hmm. century. Uh, and, um, but the, the basic problem there was the, the fact that uh, the church lost sight of the uh, importance of um, biblical teaching and uh, keeping the Christian faith in along the lines of biblical teaching. And so once they began to open up to traditions, devotions, uh, cultural patterns derived from pagan cultures, uh, that was the beginning of the end. You had you mentioned uh, in your book as well, some some unchecked analogies that went on occurred in the in the early church, even dating back to the second century. We have you mentioned people like Irenaeus, uh, Justin Martyr. Um, uh, who else did you mention? But what what were some of these unchecked uh, yeah. analogies that probably were then, if they went unchecked, they developed into unhealthy teachings on Mary? Yeah, that was another another source of Mariological development. Uh, the use of analogies that are found in, in Justin and, and, and Irenaeus relating to the uh, parallel between uh, Eve and Mary uh, as a projection of the uh, typo biblical typology um, of Adam and Christ being Christ the new Adam and uh, Adam being the first man, Christ being the last man. And so these church fathers, in thinking about this rich uh, typology of uh, Adam and the new Adam, Adam and Christ, they began to think about Mary being the analogous to what Eve was to the first Adam. Mm -hmm. And so out of that uh, extension of the typology, they began to build a type of um, relationship that was eventually developed in all directions, all Christological directions. And that typology uh, may be, you know, interested or interesting, maybe interesting in terms of being an application, an illustration of the significance of the typology between the first Adam and the last Adam, but in and of itself, it, it, nowhere in the Bible we mm -hmm. find the stretching of the typology to Mary, uh, back to uh, relating Mary to Eve. 
it, it was a, a stretch made by Irenaeus, which could make sense in terms of illustrating the richness, the significance of the Pauline um, uh, analogy between Adam and the new Adam. But again, that became something of a Mariological uh, analogy, giving rise to further developments and uh, uh, elaborations, which uh, out of a an, an illustration, out of an illustration, it became a principle, mm -hmm. um, self-referential principle, uh, needing further developments. And, uh, and so that was another unchecked um, analogy without discernment, without uh, uh, proper uh, biblical safeguarding around it. Yeah, so just summarizing this trajectory of, of this developed Mariology, again, we can't go back to one church father and say, here, this, he's, he developed it and the church latched onto it. It was, it was a process of many unchecked analogies, as you said, or things, teachings that were not accurate, but then were developed further. Uh, this principle, uh, Lex Orandi, Lex, uh, Lex Credendi, which is this principle that what was practiced in devotion people's private lives then became developed doctrine and that's not how we should doctrine should be established it's you know again going back to the reformers teaching on uh, the uh, scripture alone is is our ultimate form of authority not devotional practices um and so you have this this collection of of erroneous teachings in a sense that developed over the centuries i mean we're but we're talking about going back to the early church where we see the first statements that about Mary that were not accurate or uh, biblically founded that then even today uh, the church looks back on and, and sees that as authoritative, authoritative or part of church tradition and has developed uh, a Mariology on that. I think super, extremely key to understanding um, how Mariology was developed and how you can even try to build a biblical foundation for it is exactly what you were saying, Leah. I was looking at uh, using typology, yeah. and just for the sake of clarity with this discussion, could you? What is typology? What does that? What does that mean uh, uh, when we when we're talking about using Mary and Eve as, as typology? What does well, that mean? Uh, typology is a is a way of relating uh, different characters in the Bible in terms of uh, one being the preceding type and one being the fulfillment of the type that was uh, enshrined in the previous uh, figure. So it's the way in which Paul um, combines salvation history uh, around the two pillars of the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam being created in the image of God, but uh, falling into sin. The second Adam coming as a fool, as a, as a man, God-man and uh, fulfilling what the first Adam had failed to do. And so uh, this uh, uh, relationship between what precedes and what mm -hmm. fulfills is what describes uh, what a typology is. And in, in that sense, in the, in the Catholic, Roman Catholic uh, extension of the typology to Eve and Mary, Eve was the one 
the woman who sinned. And therefore, Mary, there is a sense in which Mary, being the mother of the sinless one, needs to be considered as having been preserved from original sin. So okay. you see that this typological type of reasoning is in operation, but there is no scriptural support right. for it. Typology in itself is not a bad thing. Obviously, no. the, the classic example and biblical example is, is Adam and Jesus. And Paul un unfolds this very clearly where Jesus is the new Adam, the better Adam. Sure. Um, the temple and the, and, the, and the body of Jesus, uh, right. the, the people of Israel, Israel as the son and Jesus as the son. So there are all kinds of typology. Type, biblical typologies. But Mary, Mary's typology is something of an attachment that uh, is never used in the Bible as a type. Right. Mary is not a type of any, anyone. And she's the mother of Jesus. And that's what her role is in the biblical story. But um, having become a, a, a type of herself has made her something that goes beyond biblical boundary. Right. Uh, I, I raised this point to, to show how this typology has influenced even modern Catholics as they, as they read back through scripture, Mary, where she, where she isn't, where she isn't present. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we spoke about a book um, written by Dr. Brant Petre on, on the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the necess necessity of looking back, through ancient ancient Jewish tradition and the Old Testament to understand what Christ was saying and applying poorly um, the same types of principles, but does the same. He has a book. Uh, he also has a book on Jesus and the Jewish roots of Mary, and and which he uses. He talks about typology and his his the entire premise and thesis of his book is based on this faulty typology of seeing Eve as the new. Or, excuse me, Mary as the as the new Eve. But let me just read a couple excerpts from his book, which then also help us to see how in the Roman Catholic mind, it, it then influences teachings on Mary, such as the Immaculate Exception, yeah. um, Conception, the Bodily Assumption. And it's all based on it's all based on typology. Uh, but let me let me just read an excerpt from his book. He says in his introduction, I learned that Catholic beliefs about Mary are deeply rooted in ancient Christianity. Mary's perpetual virginity. Her, perpetual, her sinlessness, identity as mother of God, power of intercession, and bodily assumption into heaven are not new ideas, but are very old and ancient ones. I gradually understood that these ancient Christian beliefs about Mary flowed directly out of what clearly Christians believed about Jesus. Here he quotes the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which we did uh, a moment ago, section 47. What the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ. And what it teaches about Mary illumines in turn uh, its faith in Christ says, I cannot overemphasize the significance of this principle. If you want to understand what the Bible teaches about Mary, you have to make sure you begin with what it teaches about Jesus. Therefore, in every chapter before we look at Mary, we will consider Jesus. It says, third and most important of all, I discovered that ancient Christians got their beliefs about Mary from the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. What the Bible teaches about Mary can be found in what is called typology, the study of Old Testament prefigurations, or types in their New Testament fulfillments. So the, <clears throat> then he said, I'm going to flip over a couple pages. So it says, speaking of these typologies, it says, according to the New Testament, Jesus is the new Adam, whose obedience undoes the disobedience of the first Adam. Mm -hmm. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. 
And then he says this, he says, what does any of this have to do with Mary? The answer is simple. If Jesus is the new Adam, then who is the new Eve? This is the question that is posed. And of course, we know that the answer to that is Mary. And this then, this idea that Mary is the new Eve, we will, that, that developed the thought that, well, she must have been immaculately conceived because Mary was conceived, uh, Eve was conceived without, was created without sin, apart from sin. So then if Mary is the new Eve, then she must also be without sin. It says, eventually the understanding of Mary as the second Eve led to the realization that Mary, like Eve herself, was created without sin. The logic behind this belief is quite simple. If Mary is really the new Eve, then she must be greater than Eve. If you think about it for a minute, this makes perfect sense. As we saw earlier in the book of Genesis, Eve was created very good. That is, she was created without sin. Therefore, it is reasonable to conclude that Mary, as the second Eve, must also have been created without sin. In fact, the Eve-Mary typology also suggests that Mary never committed a single sin. Or she had committed even one sin, then the old Eve would be greater than the new Eve. But we can't have that. Wow. Just as Jesus, the new Adam, was created without sin and lived free from sin, so too Mary, the new Eve, was free from sin. Yeah, <laughs> that's a perfect example of uh, the self-referential circular argument of uh, Roman Catholic Mariology. There is no scriptural reference. There is no uh, biblical support. Once you begin to think about in terms of this typology, uh, unchecked biblically, you end up in saying whatever you like. And so it's it's a a similar problem that the early church faced with Arianism, you know, the, the teaching whereby being Jesus the son and being the, the father, the father, uh, Arius could not uh, understand why the son was equal to the father. Because in, once you begin to think in, 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 in an unbiblical way, the relationship that the Bible uh, presents between the father and the son, you begin to ask questions that are not there. You begin to argue in, in terms of applying human criteria to divine life. And therefore, outside of the Bible, you you can come up with this idea that Jesus was inferior to the Father. The Son was created rather than being the creator. Because if you have a father and you have a son, there must be a difference, a substantial difference. And the church, the early church, argued strongly the case that, uh, biblically speaking, the Father and the Son had the same divine nature. And the same can also be stretched to the uh, Muslim uh, criticism of uh, Trinitarian Christianity. If you have the father and you have the son, if you apply this uh, self-referential biological typology, you end up in needing a mother somewhere. Mm. So where is the mother? There is the father, there is the son, and you must have a mother. But this is not the way the Bible describes the relationship between the sonship of Christ and the fatherhood of the father. You don't need a mother. And so even biblically speaking, the Bible does not never talks about uh, Mary as the new Eve. And once you, uh, once you instead want, want to see that the typology being established, you end up in uh, reasoning circularly. So she must be sinless. So she must 
be uh, assumed to heavenly glory. So she must, so she must, so she must. It's interesting, the language there is, he, no, there is no biblical reference to it. The language he always uses is, it's Reasonable. fitting that, or yeah. it makes sense that, or we can, uh, we can assume that. Yeah. That's, the, that's the language that's used. But we see with, the, for example, this, this teaching of the Immaculate Conception of, of Mary. Well, to an evangelical mind, it's like, well, how, how, where do you even come up with that idea um, biblically speaking, but it's, it's this, it's typology applied erroneously. Uh, and that's not that the Immaculate Conception is not alone in that. We'll talk about the bodily assumption, yeah. which is the 70th anniversary, I believe of the, of the, the dogma that was, that was actually decided on by the church. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, about the bodily assumption uh, of Mary. Yeah. It, it, it's based on the same, on the same principle. Uh, given the fact that Jesus was uh, resurrected and uh, was uh, uh, and he ascended to 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 the, the right of the Father, so being Mary, the mother of Jesus, there 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 must be a sense in which she was also assumed bodily, uh, body and soul to the heavenly glory. Uh, but there is no there is no. <laughs> Biblical support. There is no even theological need to to have Mary being having been assumed to 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 heaven because she was a sinner like uh, the rest of us, and she is waiting for the resurrection like like uh, any other uh, Christian in uh, who has already died. And uh, but once you once you 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 set this principle in motion. And you end up in adding and adding and adding uh, new developments. And the tragedy of Roman Catholicism is that this typology has become a dogma. That is, both the uh, Immaculate Conception of Mary, the 1854 dogma, Mm -hmm. and the bodily assumption to heaven, the 1950 dogma, are now dogmas mm. that is unchanging unchangeable beliefs mm. and something that are central to the christian faith can you imagine the apostle paul who never mentions never mentions the, the name of mary uh, coming back and uh, and finding that a church that bears the name christian has dogmatized something that nowhere in scripture is taught mm. can you imagine that can you imagine Mary, the mother of, of Christ, coming back <laughs> to see how the, the, the church that, that seeks, speaks to represent her son has directed a devotion that only he deserves to her, herself? I think it would break her heart. Yeah, it would. <clears throat> yeah, this um, doctrine of the, uh, the assumption, of bodily assumption of Mary into heaven, uh, speaking of this typological connection of how do, how do you, how do we read that biblically speaking? There isn't any, uh, but when you want to see that in scripture, you, you, you find what you're looking for. In fact, um, reading this, this book again, that it's interesting to see the typology. What, what would you think that the old, the old Testament typology is of, of Mary being assumed into heaven? He, he, he draws the connection between the Ark of the covenant, the Ark of the covenant is being the God's dwelling place on earth and and so that mary when you look at the new new testament god dwelled his son dwelled in in her bodies so that it makes sense in fact he says he says 
if Mary is the new ark, then her body is nothing less than the dwelling place of God on earth. Think about it. The old ark was made of pure gold and kept in the Holy of Holies because it was the place where God would descend from heaven to meet people, meet his people. It was a sacred container for the Ten Commandments, the, ma- the manna from heaven and the staff of Aaron. So now the new and greater ark, because Mary is the new and greater Eve, she's also the new and greater ark, must likewise be free from any impurity and completely holy. Mary is the sacred vessel for the word made flesh, the bread of life and the true high priest. Now, if Mary is the new ark and the ark is the dwelling place of God on earth, the Im- implication, Jesus is God on earth. In fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, Mary, in whom the Lord himself has made his dwelling, is the Ark of the Covenant. So this is official teaching of the, of the Catholic Church. And then this is, listen to this. The New Testament depicts Jesus as a new Davidic king, a kind of new David. Now, if Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant, then it makes sense that Jesus, the new David, would bring her up into heaven to be with him forever in the heavenly temple. In other words, the New Testament revelation of Mary as the new ark is essential for understanding the belief in her bodily assumption into heaven. So we can see where he draws, or the Catholic Church draws its its typological beliefs from, which are, I mean, what can you say about it? (laughs) You're speechless. Yeah, you're speechless, honestly, because you know people believe it, you don't want to, but it's it's heartbreaking uh, to see what has developed and, and, and to see what, again, the, the, the teaching that is maybe most dev- devastating is seeing in Mary what is taught about Christ and applying and, and making those almost equal. And that's, and that's what happens with, for example, uh, her, this idea of mediatrix or and what is that exactly? What does that mean as yeah, Mary as mediatrix? One, one, yeah. Once, once you begin to think about along those lines, everything that can be ascribed to Christ can be also uh, ascribed to Mary. So he is the mediator. She's, there is a sense in which the mother being so closely related to the son is, uh, is also mediatrix. If Jesus, the son, is king, there must be a sense in which the mother um, is the queen and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And you go uh, from there, uh, you, are, you, are, you have unlimited right. <laughs> A scope for right. mariological development. Yeah. Once the scripture is no longer your bound, your 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 standard, uh, it, it is this circular, self-referential, ever-expanding uh, mariological principle that uh, is developed. Right. And there is no way to 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 change it unless there is a reformation. There is a recognition of a mistake that has taken place somewhere. And so we go back to the 16th century uh, attempt to refocus uh, Christian life on Christ and Christ alone, the triune God manifested in the person and work of Christ and uh, being grounded on his work and uh, being directed towards uh, the worship of the triune God. This is very relevant. And uh, it was already there in the 16th century. And Roman Catholic Mariology has become, uh, from this point of view, worse and worse because the two recent dogmas have mm-hmm. actually made it uh, unreformable, mm-hmm. and so it's 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 a, it's a real tragedy in many ways because this kind of reasoning has become non-reformable. It, it's there in the dogmas of the Church, and if you are a devout Roman Catholic or a Roman Catholic. You must believe this. Right. It's not up to you to pick and choose. 
you must believe this and you must commit yourself to a self-referential type of uh, uh, discourse and, and that, that has nothing to do with the Bible. Well, our, our objective so far has been to demonstrate uh, that Mariology is an intrinsic aspect of Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic theology and practice. It's, it's a core issue. We also wanted to explore how that doctrine developed. How, do we, how did we arrive at this fully robust Mariology? Um, and what basis do they make claims for these, for these doctrines, for these dogmas? Is it scriptural? Is it tradition? Is it both? And, um, you know, looking at typology and, and how that has been applied uh, in an in a unhealthy way, to say the least. Um, and so I think we hopefully we've succeeded in that. Actually, for our, for our listeners, Leo is we're posting an article tomorrow. His next Vatican file is on the bodily assumption. Right. Um, so be sure to check that out on uh, vaticanfiles.org. Um, and again, because it's, it's significant right now because it is the 70th anniversary since the, the since that dogma was um, written uh, in, in 1950. Um, but I, we don't have time. I think we're a little over 40 minutes, so we're going to go ahead and conclude. But what we will do is is have a third part in which we do talk about. Okay, so from an evangelical perspective, let's let's unfold a little bit and unpack these theological problems that Mariology presents for for um, the evangelical faith and for um, for Christians. Uh, we've talked about a little bit, hinted at things, but it, it's important to to articulate them in a little in a little more clear way. So, awesome. And before we go, I wanted to mention that if you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so. Share with your friends. It would be really helpful if you could leave a positive comment as well on the platform that you um, subscribed to our podcast on. Follow us on social media, Twitter at Reformanda Rome, and on Facebook at Reformanda Initiative. Our website is www.reformandainitiative.org. All right, gentlemen. Well, I think that's it for today. So until next time, God bless. Mm -hmm.